We are in uh, the Gospel of John. We've been slowly working through it. First, we're uh, getting close to the end of the first half of the book of, of, or the Gospel of John. John's book is separated into two sections. The first is called the Book of Signs. And it's arranged around seven supernatural signs that Jesus does to show uh, that everything he claims to be is absolutely true. And here in chapter 11, we're going to talk about the raising of Lazarus. It's the seventh sign in the book of signs, so it's the pinnacle of all these supernatural events that Jesus has been doing, and he is going to, uh, today, back up everything that he's been saying for the first ten chapters. He's been making these astonishing claims about his power over life and death, and today he's going to prove it all to be true. So if I could ask you to, if you're able to, this is a long reading so if you're, uh, if you're not able to, please feel free to sit through this. But if you are able, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Let us all pay uh, attention together to the reading of God's Word. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, then he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from him, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, he went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus heard and saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all that it's telling us. Father, we are... We tend to become so short-sighted in our suffering, Lord, and to think uh, that you are not with us, that you do not have us, that you have not answered our prayers, that you don't love us. We tend to be just like Martha and Mary, wondering where you are, Lord, but your word tells us that you are always with us, that you have never abandoned us or forsaken us, and that the answers to the prayers uh, that we have in the moment, if they're not answered immediately, will be answered in a fantastic way beyond our imagination in your perfect timing, Lord. So grant us to hear your word today, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We have a a family that we know not well, but know them from a sister church of ours. And uh, not long ago, they went through a horrible tragedy where the wife, uh, they, they had, they were, had a, they were, the wife was pregnant and she prematurely bore the, bore the son at 26 weeks. And um, for two days and two nights, the family prayed and prayed and prayed and pleaded with the Lord and the nurses working in the NICU were pleading and pleading with the Lord and at the end of two days, eventually the baby died. And we all have stories like that that we know of. 
Just this last week, our, our own friend and brother, part of this church, Peter Savage, died at 48 years old. Too young. And the family had been praying and praying and praying him for years and years. And no healing came. In my own life, when I was 15, my mother, when I was 12, my mother came down with cancer. And we as a family, we prayed and we prayed and the church prayed and we did everything we could think of medically and spiritually, praying and pleading with God, with Jesus, to bring a healing. And he didn't. She died. And I was discouraged, as I know many people are that go through that sort of thing. I looked at that and I said, Lord, if that's what you have for your people, I'm out of here. I couldn't understand why he wouldn't have answered our prayers. Obviously, he could. Why wouldn't he do it? Why would he let, why, why would he let my mother die? Why does he let people die that we care about? You know, even now, I have a good friend, a man who's been like a father to me, who is in the deathly throes of addiction and so close to death he doesn't even know it and I am terrified for him and I am praying night and day and fasting for his health but I'm also preparing my heart for the fact that he may soon be that he may soon be dead you know the sad reality is that in the world sometimes we pray as hard as we can for healing and it doesn't happen Our prayers are not answered in the way that we want them to be. Sometimes all we hear is silence. And sometimes that makes us think that Jesus has abandoned us. But he hasn't. Sometimes the answers to those prayers are not yet or wait. Because something even greater than we could possibly imagine or expect is coming something greater than our time-bound consciousness and our finite understanding of reality is even able to comprehend. A greater answer to the prayer and a greater healing and a greater supernatural event that we could, than, that, than our minds are even capable of wrapping our minds around. And that is the Christian hope. This passage speaks to us in that kind of suffering and shows us that even in the silence, even in the waiting, Jesus has not abandoned us. That he is with us and that that he will answer. He will answer those prayers. And so the thesis of this passage, the thesis of this sermon, the one big idea that John, that Jesus wants us to know more than anything else is this is that we can become short-sighted in our suffering when we lose sight of the love of Christ for us and his promises of resurrection and life. We can become short-sighted in our suffering when we lose sight of the love of Christ for us and for the, his promises of resurrection and life. We'll move through that one part at a time. First, we become short-sighted in our suffering. Look at verse 3. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he who who, who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was at. You can imagine that scene in, at the house in Bethany where Mary, Martha and Mary and her sister and the family all-night prayer vigil over Lazarus. He probably became ill pretty quick. And in the ancient world, there were a lot of illnesses that could kill you fast. There was no ER to go to. There were no paramedics to call. There was no health insurance to claim. All they had literally was their petition to Jesus, who they know was about a day away. That's all they had. And so you can imagine that scene as they fervently prayed through the night to God and they sent out word for Jesus asking him to come and hear their prayers and come and heal their beloved brother, even the one that Jesus himself loved so much. And at the end of the day, we see that they are clearly disappointed. And you can hear it. You can hear it in both Martha's voice and in Mary's voice when they first come to see Jesus. When they finally see him, the first thing out of their mouth is, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Translation. Where were you? Why didn't you show up? Do you love us? Do you really care about us? Why would you let this happen? In their suffering and their overwhelming grief at the loss of separation from the one they loved, they became indignant with Jesus. And you can understand that. We can all understand that. I mean, it happens, it happens to all of us, right? And we're talking about huge loss here. It happens in huge loss, but it happens in small loss too. If we're really honest, let's be honest, a lot of our prayers that we pray they come out of a fear of loss because of our limited perspective on life. We, you know, um, Pastor Ted at New Life used to joke around that the horizon of his, of his life was seven days away because he always had to prepare a sermon. And now I'm in this spot, and he still tell you the same thing. The life of our house, the, the, the outside limit of our horizon, of our perspective of our horizon is about seven days out as we go through the cycle of sermon, pass out, prep, sermon, pass out, right? That's the course of our life. And the same thing can, and so in the midst of that, it gets real easy to lose sight of the big picture of, of you know, the bigger picture of the church, of all the things that need to happen and go. And so I have to force myself to like stay conscious and present and, 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 and participating in moving forward the big vision of the church. It's hard to do, right? The same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We can become so weighed down in the little sufferings of life and the loss, of, and so weighed down in the suffering of this life, it becomes very easy for us to turn to those material comforts that we think we have to have in order to be okay. Little things, bigger things, even big things, even good things, we can attach ourselves to them more than we should as the, the thing that we must have to be okay. And so our prayer life can then morph into this list of things that God needs to provide for us to be okay instead of a prayer life, a deep prayer life that is um, 
It's asking God to shape us into his perfect will. You know, I read one of my devotional books, this Valley of Vision, and I read a prayer from it, you know, just today. Those prayers, those, those prayers from the Puritans are just saturated with prayers that are asking God to reshape our hearts into his will and his perfect knowledge and his perfect understanding and away from our finite and imperfect understanding. The, uh, there was a line in the prayer that I read tonight that said, it said, may we not instruct you in our troubles, but glorify you in our trials. And isn't that the truth? Don't you feel it sometimes when you're praying, you just want something so bad and you start telling God what he needs to do to be okay or you, you know, you have this fear that he's going to pull something out of your life or he does pull something out of your life that you think you can't live without and immediately our thought is, that's a mistake. He can't do that. I can't live without that. He's got to bring that back. I can't be okay. God has dropped the ball on me. He's abandoned me. He's left me. But instead, that prayer says, don't, we're not trying, we shouldn't be instructing God what he needs to do, right? We were going to tell God what's right and what's wrong. We need, we, we need to tell God what's going on in the in, you know, the overarching scope of our lives. But rather, it encourages us to glorify him through our trials. In other words, that the trials and the losses that God gives us are his mercy to us, or things get it's the perfectly engineered circumstances in our life that God has given us to grow us in faith, to grow us in righteousness, so that we would be able to worship him and glorify him and not be so distraught by the suffering of the world. And when we do that, when we try, when, we, when our prayer life, you know, focus falls down into this instruction of God for what we should or he should or shouldn't do, when he doesn't come through with that, our response is like Mary and Martha. We become indignant. We can become indignant. Or it's very easy to slide into a, a, almost a self-righteous anger with God. Sometimes it's very low level and boiling under the surface. Sometimes we see in counseling cases it just blows up out of the top of this anger for God because we have sent him our list of demands and he has not responded appropriately. Now I get it. Some of these things that God is asking us to do, to go through the death of a child, to go through the death of your mother when you're 15, those are hard things. But God promises in the midst of it that he is doing us good ultimately. Listen, look, did you hear what, listen to what it said again. Look at verse five and six. This, did you catch it? He said, you know, they sent for Jesus. Jesus says, this is not unto death. It's here to glorify God. And then it just throws out here this. It says, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days longer in the place that he was. How does that make sense? In other words, it's saying because he loved them, he waited two more days on purpose to make sure that Lazarus died. How is that love? How is that not sadistic? Well, the truth is, 
that he wanted something even more for them. He wanted something bigger for them than just the healing. Yes, the healing would have made things better right then and there, but God's vision, his picture, what he wanted to do was so much bigger than just a physical healing at the time. He wanted to put on display his glory through them to display to them all of the glory of God and the glory of Jesus and his power over life and death. He was offering them to be a part of that display so that they might glorify him even through this suffering and bring glory to God, something so much bigger than they had even thought of. You know, John Fesco says, that against the backdrop of death and the fall, the light of Christ was going to shine like the corona of the sun. That's what he's doing. But it means that they have to sit tight and wait and trust him through the pain. And man, that is hard to do, isn't it? How do we know? How do you know you can trust him? How do you know we can trust Jesus to come through in those awful moments when he is asking us to sit and wait and suffer? The second point. First point, we become short-sighted in our suffering. Second point, when we lose sight of the love of Christ for us. The reality is that there's a direct relationship between our level of faith and the clarity of our vision of Jesus and who he is, what he's all about, and what he's done. And the better we are focused on Jesus and his, especially his love for us, how much he cares for us, the stronger our faith is going to be in the weight. The more we know about the character of Jesus, uh, the more we are able to trust him because he proves himself to be trustworthy. And this passage gives us an, 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 a beautifully astonishing, amazing picture of God's attitude towards us. Listen to verse 33. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. You know, right after this it says, there's a group of the Jews from Jerusalem who say, oh, see how he loved him. And so most people think that he's weeping over the death of Lazarus. But, but look what it says. He says, when he saw her weeping, when he saw Mary weeping, and when he saw all the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And that says two things. The first thing is deeply moved in his spirit means to have an intense strong feeling of concern, often with the implication of indignation. There's a righteous, like, indignant anger in Jesus about what he's seeing. And on top of that, he's greatly troubled, means to cause acute emotional distress or turbulence, to to cause great mental distress. He is is overwhelmed with a compassion passionate empathy for what he sees and it is causing in him also to well up in this indignation, this anger at what he's seeing. 
Now, what is he angry at? Is he angry at the people? I don't think so. He's angry at what's causing what he sees. He's angry at the death and the suffering of, and the curse. He's, he's angry and upset and, and, and boiling over with sadness and compassion over the effects of the fall on his people that he loves, on his creation. It's not just that he's sad about Lazarus. He knows what's going to happen to Lazarus. Right? That means that God's compassion for us is not just sympathetic. It's not just, it's not just the God in the heavens who looks down upon us and feels pity. But it's empathetic. Look where he's standing. He's standing in the middle of them. And he is experiencing the pain of suffering and death as a man. If the incarnation means anything, it means that God has come to us and has experienced our suffering as a man so that he's not just sympathizing with us, but he is empathetic. He is compassionate for, for us in the way of someone else who's gone through the same suffering. He's been there. He gets it. He understands the suffering that we have and he is angry at the cause of that suffering. So whenever you're tempted to think that Jesus is angry with you, come back to this passage and read it and meditate through it. Jesus is not angry with you. He's angry with the satanic forces that have caused the suffering in this world And he's going to do something about it. He promises to do something about it. Second thing that causes us to trust in Jesus is, remember when the New Testament gives details, they're important, right? We're told that the disciples warn against Jesus about going back to Judea because they just tried to kill him. Thomas expects them all to die when they get there at verse 16. Bethany, they say that Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem in verse 18. Martha gets up and leaves her house to go meet Jesus and head him off at the path before he arrives because the house is crawling with Jews from Jerusalem, with his enemies. And then Mary is told in secret that Jesus is here and she gets up and leaves. In other words, it's going to great trouble to tell us that to come and raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has gotten danger close to his enemies. And as we read on, we find out that in fact... Next week, we'll see that this miracle, this final miracle of raising this man from the dead is the last straw on the camel of the Pharisees' back, and they instigate, and they instigate formal proceedings to kill him. Literally, the raising of Lazarus literally cost Jesus his life. It's a preview that we're seeing here. His raising Lazarus, a preview of the cross that he's about to go to for all of us, to bring all of us into resurrection and into life. So how do we know we can trust Jesus in the wait time? We know because he loves us. And he just doesn't say he loves us. We see it. He's come and presented himself in the form 
of a man that we would be able to understand and see the face of God. And we have seen and he has shown us his deep, heartfelt compassion and empathy for us. And he also, we can trust him because he not only risked his life for us, he not only put his his life on the line for us, but he went through the cross and gave his life for us. Not just talk, he proved that these things are true. He proved that he did these things and he proved that he could raise people from the dead and raise himself from the dead so that we could trust that his promises are true. So point one, we become short-sighted in our suffering. Point two, we lose sight when we lose sight of the love of Christ for us. And point three, his promises of resurrection and life. His promises of resurrection and life. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Another detail they give us is that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so I read that and I wondered, why would they, why would they tell us that he'd been dead for four days? There must be something about that, right? And so I went online to find out what happens to a dead body as it goes through the process of decomposition. It turns out there's Five stages of decomposition. Do you, you want to hear them? Too bad, I'm going to tell you anyways. Okay, so the first one is called the fresh stage, where things pretty much stay the same. The bacteria in our gut starts to break down and move through our bodies, producing gas. Uh, and it's worse depending on temperature and air supply. That's one to three days. The second stage is called putrefaction, where the body begins to bloat because the bacteria begin to emit gases uh, and the the body starts to change colors. And then eventually it goes to the third stage where the bloating causes the body to burst and the gases escape. Uh, And then eventually you end up as just a, a pile of goo and organic mess and hair and bones at the bottom of a casket somewhere. And uh, there's two other steps, but I'll spare you. It just, those aren't as exciting as the first three. So I was, no, look, I was reading this, right? And I'm thinking to myself, all, all of a sudden, the thought hits me. I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm reading through this. I'm reading about, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the and I think to myself, that's going to happen to me. <laughs> this body. I'm looking at my legs sitting in my chair, and I'm thinking, but these my legs are going to turn into a pile of goo and bone and hair at the bottom of a coffin someday. That's going to happen to me. And I suspect it's going to happen to you. And statistically, not everyone in here is going to die of old age. You don't know. Our brother Peter Savage, 47 years old. Boom. You know what happens? The reality is 
that we are suffering in a world that is overcome in the shadow of death and we're all subject to it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to dwell on it. And it's not good to dwell in morbid reflection on the fact that you're going to be a pile of goo in the bottom of a coffin someday, but it does help us to push aside the minor concerns and the minor problems of life, the stuff that Paul called our light and momentary afflictions. When we're thinking about the things in life that were just crushing us that we can't live without, the things that we get so upset about Jesus for not answering the prayers as we pray them right away in the way that we want them to be answered, it helps us to focus on the fact that there is a real problem that we all face and that Jesus has promised an answer for that. Jesus has promised that we already have an answer for that. You know, throughout this book, he's been making these crazy claims about himself. Look at chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, from verse 25 on here. This is one of the more remarkable claims that Jesus makes about himself. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear me will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now we have seen as we're moving through John's gospel, that he will make these astonishing claims and then he will do some sort of supernatural miracle to prove that what he, that crazy thing that he just said, he actually has power to do. He showed up at the Feast of Tabernacles and said, I am the light of the world. And then he goes and heals a man who is born since, blind since birth, something unheard of. He gave that man eyes to see and gave him for the first time ever the light of the world and the very first thing he saw was Jesus in his face. He recognized his voice. And now Jesus has made these astonishing claims that it is his voice that is going to call the dead to life and he's going to prove it right here. He's saying it's not good enough. I'm just not going to say it. I'm going to show you. You know, Mary's problem is she's stuck in the abstract future, the resurrection of the dead. How many of you woke up this morning and were excited about the resurrection of the dead on the last day? How many of you thought about it this week? You said you find yourself driving down in the car and thinking, man, I am so stoked about the resurrection of the dead on the last day. I mean, even though that is a global, that is the consummate, global, redemptive, historical, amazing thing that will ever happen in the history of the world. It's so big, you can't really grasp our minds around it. It's hard to even conceptually take it in. And so it's just not something we get excited about every day. So Jesus, you know, she, Mary says, why didn't you 
heal my brother. Where were you? And Jesus, you know, says, your brother will rise on the last day. And she says, yeah, I know. I know on the last day my brother's going to rise. Disappointment in her voice. And Jesus answers her. He says, no, no, Mary. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is his answer to her. When she responds in that discouragement of, yeah, yeah, the last day. He said, no, you don't get it. I am, resurrect- I am the resurrection now. All those who are in union with me, if you are united in me by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have been resurrected to new life. Throughout the whole thing we talked about last week, he's been saying eternal life is a current possession that I have already given my people. This is something that you have now. And the Spirit shocks her awake and she makes the confession of faith that Peter makes in the synoptics. This is astonishing when she says, she admits, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the one coming into the world. Let's not miss that. In all the synoptic gospels, it's Peter who says that. But here in John's gospel, it's Martha who makes the consummate confession of faith at the dividing line between at the dividing line of the Gospels. A woman, let's not miss that. The dignity that God has given to women in the Christian faith. But then the best part happens. He looks at Martha, I think he's winking at her. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. And then the voice, the voice that created all life at the beginning, the voice that brought everything out of nothing, the voice that created all living things, calls Lazarus out of the tomb by name. Lazarus, come out. Like it's no big deal for him. Because it's not. Whoever created life has no problem with the power to recreate it. And bring it back even from the depths of the grave. Just like he will do for us someday. Calling us all out by name. Come out precious to the Lord. Come out beloved son, beloved daughter. Come out of the sadness of the fall and into the forever joy of God. Now, concluding, what do we learn from all this? We learn that sometimes God's going to ask us to wait patiently in our suffering as He works out His perfect witness or His perfect will in a way that's going to glorify Him, glorify His Son and ultimately allow us to enjoy him forever in a bigger way than we could ever possibly imagine. And he very well may ask us to wait in patient suffering. And so the answer to these questions that come to us in our pain and in our grief, the answer to God, why did you do this? 
God, why have you taken my child? God, why did you take my mom? Why have you taken my marriage? The answer is not silence. The answer is yes. I've called you to be my faithful witness through this suffering. But I promise you, I promise you resurrection and life, and it's already started. And we know that we can trust him because he has proven himself trustworthy in how much he has shown his love for us and his death for us and his empathetic compassion for us. And we know that his promises are true because he didn't just talk about it. He actually did it. He demonstrated this power for all to see, for all of those people standing around that saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. For us, the Holy Spirit has recorded this historical event and saved it for us so that we would know that he has power over life and death just like he promised. And he promises not to leave us under the power of death and not to leave us in our suffering. He promises that he will make everything right. Amen? We can become short-sighted in our suffering when we lose sight of the love of Christ for us and his promises of resurrection and life. But his promises are good and true and perfect and they will come to pass. In Jesus' name. Well, Lord, as we approach your table, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that we do live under the fall and under the curse, and there are things that are awful about the world, and we have suffered loss, and we've experienced pain. But we don't suffer without hope. We don't serve the other gods of the nations that stand above us in contempt throwing down an impossible ladder for us to climb. But you have incarnated into the world so that you might experience as a man our pain and suffering and you fulfilled everything required for us to be with you forever. To let us know how much you love us, how much you care for us, and to give us a way to be with you in heaven forever. So we pray that you would help us to remember these things, Lord, when we're tempted to think that you are angry with us. We pray that you would help us to remember that you are angry at the enemy and that you have fought and conquered him for us. When we're tempted to think that you are silent and that you don't care, that you haven't heard us, we pray that you would help us to remember the short-sighted nature of our own prayers in the pain of our suffering and trust that you are answering our prayers to you in a way that's better than we could possibly imagine. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand as faithful witnesses to your gospel in this dark age as we wait for that glorious day when you come and rescue us and bring us out and wipe away our tears and reunite us with all of our loved ones that we've lost and make everything right again forever and ever in your perfect kingdom. Lord, help us to be filled with rejoicing and joy as we think about that, knowing that you cannot lie knowing that you will not turn from your promises to us and that it will come to pass by your power and in your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.